This evening we'll be reading from Joshua 3 as our Scripture passage. Just a quick note before we read, you may notice some similar applications to what we heard this morning when Pastor Wayne presented the Word to us. But that's okay, because if you're anything like me, sometimes you need to hear the same thing twice, three times, as many times as you need to get it through our heads. And so let's open God's Word this evening in Joshua 3. Let's see what the Spirit has for us in this passage. Joshua 3, I'll be reading the whole chapter. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and, and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So, when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of all the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap 
very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Have you ever encountered an obstacle that seemed too great to overcome? I really want us to think about that. Because we've all had obstacles. We've all had obstacles that have brought us to our knees, that have made us wonder if the Lord is present with us. We all have those obstacles. Have you ever encountered an obstacle that seemed too great to overcome? Perhaps to varying degrees, we've encountered these obstacles. Maybe you've come across a physical obstacle. As Pastor Wayne said this morning, maybe Alzheimer's, cancer, maybe a debilitating injury that kept you out of work, or if you play sports in school, maybe something that kept you out of sports for a time, maybe a Parkinson's diagnosis, maybe a miscarriage. Maybe along with that physical obstacle, you've encountered an emotional obstacle, a battle with depression, anxiety, a broken heart. Maybe you've encountered an emotional obstacle, a depression, anxiety, a broken heart. Maybe you've encountered a relational obstacle, a broken friendship, a betrayal of confidence, or a seemingly irreconcilable relationship. And perhaps a spiritual obstacle. An obstacle that caused you to question, am I saved? Lord, what is your will? How can I trust you in this? How can I move forward? In Joshua 3, in our text here, we find the nation of Israel stuck in a similar type of situation, don't we? We enter into the story just as Joshua has taken leadership of Israel and the nation's preparing to move into the land of Canaan. So as the people moved from their desert bondage towards the land of promise in Canaan, they came across this obstacle that would be too great to overcome. What does Israel do in that moment? And what is the Lord teaching us to do when those moments arise for us? 
in this passage, we're going to see that because God himself has entered into the waters, we can trust his promise to lead his people from death to life. We'll consider this under three points this evening. Notice first the problem, second the plan, and third the path. So in verse 1, we open our passage. We read about Joshua and Israel departing early in the morning and starting their march towards Canaan. And as the nation marched nearer to the promised land, which lay before them, the Jordan River came into view. Can you picture that? Everything's going so well for Israel right now. At the end of chapter 2 of Joshua, we read that the spies who had just returned, the spies that Rahab had hidden their home, they had just returned to the camp of Israel. And the last verse of chapter 2, verse 24, and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Wow. How exciting is that? You can almost hear the cheer go up throughout all of Israel as the spies report this good news. I mean, finally, after 40 years in the desert, the Lord is fulfilling His promise to bring your people into the land that He set before you. And so if you're an Israelite, you're, you're packing your bags, you're loading up your trailer, you're grabbing your kids, and you're heading with enthusiasm towards the Jordan River, towards the land of Canaan. They got an extra kick in their step, don't they? They're excited. And then imagine you're one of those Israelites. Just as you're getting close to Canaan, you're climbing a hill, and at the top you look out at the land that's yours, and momentum stops. What do you see? the Jordan River raging in front of you. You know, it must have felt something like what the pioneers felt like the first time they tried to move west in America, right? They, they loaded up their trailers. They had packed all of their provisions. They had all of their supplies. They were excited to explore, to adventure, and then mountain range. Man. What a momentum killer. Have you ever experienced something like this? Something that took the wind out of your sails? You're flying high. You're trusting in the Lord. You're building relationships. You've got an upward trajectory at the company where you work. You just found out that you're pregnant. You're moving past your season of depression and anxiety. You finally found joy. You're moving out of the desert and you're moving into Canaan. And then all of a sudden, an obstacle appears. Momentum stops. An impassable obstacle. What is that obstacle for you? So then we see here in this passage, just as Joshua's taking command of Israel, he and the nation were confronted with this obstacle. 
And I know what many of you are probably thinking. How hard can it be to cross a river, right? I mean, come on, we've all crossed rivers and creeks and streams. We know our way around these natural barriers. And after all, the spies, they just managed to get there and back. I mean, this isn't going to be that big of a deal, right? Well, our first evidence of the problem arises out of the fact that Israel had to lodge at the bank of the river before going over in the first place. You know, if the Jordan River could have been easily crossed, perhaps Israel could have just continued marching through. Perhaps they could have just gone straight into Canaan and, and claimed their land. Thus, the fact that they needed to lodge there in the first place is our first evidence that there might be a problem here. But the second and more obvious evidence is later in the chapter. Verse 15, as we read, it tells us the condition of the Jordan River at the time of year that Israel was heading towards it. And I'll just read that, that brief, you see it in parentheses in your Bibles. Now the Jordan River overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Okay, there's a problem. You see, the conditions of the river at this time of year didn't just make crossing the Jordan River inconvenient, right? They weren't going to they weren't going to hike up their pants and tiptoe across the river to get into Canaan. No, that wasn't, going to be, that wasn't going to be an option. And the reason why is because the waters of the Jordan rage at their fastest, at their hardest this time of year. You see, the Jordan is affected by the snow melt from Mount Lebanon. And at this time of year, the, the melting snow increases the flow of the water through the Jordan River to the point that the river is up to a mile wide where Israel is going to be crossing. It's a torrent that would prove deadly to the Israelites if they tried to cross it. And yeah, the spies were able to make it across. But you have to, you have to appreciate the spies, they're not just any men from Israel. They're, they're the best. They're the most physically equipped, the most gifted men to get across to the land and to get back without getting caught. We've got an entire nation of people We've got elderly, we've got disabled people, we've got children with us. And all of us have to get into the land. And so there's no way that this nation was going to be able to get around this obstacle. They were totally helpless. Trapped in their desert bondage with certain death flowing between them and their freedom. So what they do, they set up a camp for three days as they were forced to ponder their situation. Imagine something with me once again. Imagine you're one of the Israelites in that camp. You set up your tent at the edge of the Jordan River, right on the bank there, and for three days, you're just sitting there in your tent, contemplating Oh, man, how on earth are we going to get across to the land? And you're sitting in your tent, and, and all along the waters of the Jordan River are just raging, and, and they're, the, the, the noise from the Jordan River must have been almost deafening to them as it seemed to, it seemed to mock them as they waited in their tents. And they're just sitting there helpless. I mean, you can look out across the river, and Canaan's right there. I mean, you can almost taste the milk and the honey that was promised to them 
when they were to enter in, but they couldn't get there. And not just to mention that, but I mean, you have the reminder of what's behind you. What's behind you if you're one of these Israelites? Yeah, the desert, Egypt, reminders of your bondage to sin, memories of suffering in the desert, the reminder of all the pain that you endured on the way to the river, and the reminder of all the death that you're leaving behind on that side of the Jordan. There was no hope for Israel on this side of the river. But there was no way for them to get across into freedom on their own strength. I mean, come on, we can, we can imagine the frustration, right? Forty years, for forty years, they've been wandering around in the land of death and punishment. And now finally, you get to leave. Yes. And now this. As if the desert wanderings weren't enough, now I have to face this river? As an Israelite, you might have wondered, is this it? I mean, is, is God going to judge me in these waters? Is, is He just going to get it over with? Will I be swept away to destruction when I step into that river? Am I ever going to leave this desert? Or will the sins of my past hold me captive in bondage? Congregation, what do we do when an obstacle stands in our way? When the waters of the river are too great to cross on our own, we can cry out in our anxieties with tears in our eyes, it's too much, Lord. This obstacle's too great. I'm not going to be able to make it through this time. I'm trapped here in bondage. I'm trapped here in death, and nothing can carry me through, Lord. Lord, why have you led me out here to die in the wilderness? What is your will in this? How can I trust you in this? How can I move forward? But beloved, your Father has not left you to die in the desert. He has not left you to waste away in your troubles, in your fears, in your anxieties, in your burdens, in your hurt, in your depression. He hasn't left it up to you to try and find your way across the river. God has a plan to bring his people out of the place of death. He has a plan to lead you through the river. He knows the way from that place of suffering to that place of hope. Because unlike us, he has gone that way before. And he has made a way to overcome those obstacles to lead you from death to life. And that brings us to our second point this evening, the plan. What will the Lord do to bring his people from bondage to freedom. See, if Israel was going to cross the Jordan River, they'd need a mighty display of God to overcome that obstacle. We're going need, to need that too, to overcome the obstacles that are set before us. 
So let's take a look at the plan. First things first, we want to see where was the focus of Israel directed here? What was, what was the plan in that? So as, as we read in, in the chapter here, as Israel continued camping against the bank of the Jordan, the Lord set His plan into motion, and here it is. Notice the key element here. At the end of three days, the officers of Israel passed through the camp, commanding the people to keep an eye out for the ark to pass before them. And once they saw it passing by, they were to follow after it, keeping a distance of 2,000 cubits, or about 3,000 feet, so that they would know the way that they should go. Okay, so what was the key element? It's where their focus is directed. That all their focus should be directed to the ark as it passed by them. Isn't that picture... Doesn't that element remind you of a wedding ceremony? Yeah, you've got the groomsman. He starts things off. First, he seats the grandparents. Then he moves to the parents. And then finally, the groomsman and the pastor walk down the aisle and make their way up front. And then, of course, our favorite, the flower girl, the ring bearer, throwing flowers, dumping them Right away, there's none that make it actually to the end where the altar is, but it's, it's just a cute, it's a spectacle, isn't it? And we're all so familiar with that. And then finally, once those other things are out of the way, what is next? Mother of the bride, she rises to her feet, she turns, and the rest of the congregation rises to their feet, and they turn and their focus is set on the bride as she makes her way down the aisle to be wedded to her groom. That's the type of focus that people are to have on the ark as it passes through the midst of Israel. So why pay so much attention to the ark? Kids, do you know or do you remember what the ark was? The Ark of the Covenant? Remember learning that in Sunday school? I'm sure you do. If you remember right, the Ark was the presence of God with the nation of Israel. And so just as God's presence had been shown in a cloud as Israel left Egypt, so now God's presence was shown in the Ark of the Covenant as Israel traveled through the desert and as they're traveling into Canaan. So as the Ark of the Covenant passed before the nation of Israel, everyone in Israel would have known what that was. That was, that was God himself going before them, paving the way. And that would mean that God himself was carrying out the plan to bring Israel to freedom. Is that your instinct when that obstacle comes your way? How do you respond? Do you set your focus on the Lord? Do you read His Word? Do you seek Him in prayer? Do you set your eyes on Him? So Israel was to keep their focus on the ark as the Lord moved forward towards the Jordan River. But there's more to the plan than that. The rest of the passage reveals God's purposes. In verse 7, we read, and you can read with me, 
The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So that's purpose one. God is establishing Joshua as the leader of Israel, confirming his presence with them. And then in verse 10, we see a second purpose. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. There's our second purpose, that after overcoming this obstacle, that they could take confidence that the Lord would without fail help them overcome any obstacles that were to come. And finally, in verse 13, And when the souls of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And there's our third purpose, that the Lord would lead his people into freedom, into the land which he had been preparing for them. So what does that tell us? Well, the purposes of the Lord here, they tell us that in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our doubts and our fears, God is working out His purposes. He is, and it's not just a platitude that we say, to say, yeah, God is, God is with you. God is, He has a plan for this. He has His purposes here. But no, He really does. He has His purposes here. He purposes that we would focus our eyes on Him in the midst of our trials. He purposes to show us through our trials that He is with us and that He's leading us all the way. When God brings trials to our doorstep, He's preparing us for trials that we will face in the future. And in all this, He purposes to bring us to dependence upon Him to lead us through. If you've overcome trials in your past, have you seen how the Lord used that trial to draw you closer to Himself? To assure you that He is with you? To strengthen your faith and reliance on Him? Have you seen how the Lord has used trials from your past to prepare and strengthen you for future trials? Has he led you to see how your life and breath are dependent on him alone? So in these verses, we see the plan of God fully in focus, with Israel's gaze fixed on the ark of the covenant before them. He himself would enter into the waters so that Israel could learn to trust in his presence, to trust him in the face of trials that would come in the future, and to cross into the promised land. This all leads us to our final point this evening, as we see the path which the Lord cleared for his people. So the plan was set. Israel was to keep their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant as it passed before them, remaining 3,000 feet behind the priests as they carried it towards the river. And then as the Ark entered into the Jordan River, Israel could expect that the waters would be separated, that they'd recede and that they'd be able to pass into Canaan. It's, it's an interesting thing just to note in, in verse 14. 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water throughout the harvest time, the waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away. And what do you notice in verse 14? The people set out in faith. They knew that God was going to bring them into the land. They had expectancy that he was going to fulfill the promise that he had made to them. And as the Lord promised, he did clear a path for them to enter into Canaan. And so with everyone's eyes fixed on the Ark of the Covenant, they watched the priests enter into the water, and in an instant, the waters rose up in a heap very far away. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The gushing water over a mile wide, suddenly where the Ark of the Covenant had entered in, dry land on one side, water receding on the other, on the other side, standing up so far away that Israel could hardly see it anymore. And so with this, the people passed over to Canaan on dry ground. The powerful force of judgment which flowed through those waters and threatened to condemn Israel was no match against the power of God himself. As the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God moved into the river, the waters were conquered, and the path was opened for Israel to move from death to life. Now the Israelites were free to step into the dried-up riverbed and to cross over into Canaan with their eyes fixed on the Ark of the Covenant. They laid claim to the land which the Lord had prepared for them. Their path was cleared by the power of God. So what does this mean for us tonight? I want to close this evening by looking at two applications First, this text gives us a comfort for right now. God doesn't leave us to cross the Jordan River on our own. So whatever that obstacle is that you thought of at the beginning of the sermon, you're not facing that alone. See, God exalted Joshua in the eyes of all Israel so that he could lead the people so that he could walk with them, so that he could minister to them. And in this, the people would know that God himself was with them. But today, we have a greater Joshua, Emmanuel, who isn't just a symbol of God being with us. He's, he's God himself with us. And even now, Jesus leads you in your hurt. He walks beside you in your sorrow. And he ministers to you by his Spirit. Perhaps the most comforting thing of all, Jesus doesn't just stand like a general leading from the back lines. Jesus doesn't sit on his horse, commanding his troops to ride off into battle, sending one unit this way and another unit this way, and, and, and people are forced to carry out the command to, to go to war, to go to battle, to, to save themselves. He doesn't send other people to die for the sake of the cause. No, Christ isn't that type of general. Christ 
went before us. Just as the ark went before all of Israel, he led the charge, as it were. He entered into the midst of our sorrow, into the midst of our pain, into the midst of our sufferings, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows. He was pierced in the midst of the battle for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He charged into the battle, and He took the punishment for us. And as our leader, He died for His people. And we heard this verse this morning already, but again, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Beloved, as you fight in the midst of the battle, grief hurling itself towards you, surrounding you on every side, threatening to tear you down, threatening to leave you for dead, so let's be honest, there's going to be days where you feel totally alone. You're going to feel like you're in the midst of the battlefield, stranded on a plane, weak and suffering and dying, and you're just totally exposed and, and grief and hurt and trial and, and depression and anxiety. They're just closing in on you from every side, and you've got nothing left in you as it is to stand up and fight against it. And so you fall to your knees. You feel like giving up you feel like you're dying in that place, overwhelmed and completely undone. But you're not alone in that field. The comfort is that Jesus Christ is fighting at your side. As grief and pain come, come hurtling towards you, Jesus Christ stands with you in the midst of the battle that awaits and he doesn't fight from a losing position. Jesus Christ isn't on his knees. Jesus Christ isn't about to die. Jesus Christ has already won. The victory is his. He will win the day. He will not let you fall. And he will remain in the battle, reigning from above at the right hand of God, until all of Israel has passed through into Canaan. So that's our first comfort. Christ is in the battle with us. But there's a second comfort here that this passage points us towards, and it's not just our earthly comfort, although it is. It's our eternal comfort. See, God does not leave his people in the desert forever. You may feel like you're camped at the bank of the Jordan for three days, three weeks, three months, three years, but God will not abandon you there. He's made a way to bring his people from this present evil age, this desert age, this age of bondage and grief, and he brings them into the age to come. He tells us in the midst of our sufferings that when all earthly hope seems lost, to press on in the promise 
of the hope that awaits us. Now I'll finish with just one more illustration. There was once a man, a man who was captured by a foreign nation and held captive in dungeons in this nation, in this foreign land. This man was ripped away from his family, ripped away from his home, and he was kept rotting in that dungeon. Until one night, a man appeared with a key. Opening the door to his cell, leading him out of the dungeon into the night, that mysterious man pointed him in the direction of home and told him to run until he reached his homeland. And so the man began to run. And as night turned to day, the man continued to run until he came upon a desert. And as he continued to run into the desert, the sun scorched his face as the heat of the day rained down upon him. The terrain of the desert, the, the rocks and the gravel, cut up his feet as he continued to run, and sand filled the cracks and the crevices, and, and just every step he took filled with stinging pain. And as he continued to run, he passed a traveling band of merchants who mocked him. They said, you're in such a sorry state. They said, your skin is burned. Your feet are torn. Why do you continue to run rather than just giving up and dying in this desert? And the man exclaimed, because I am going home. And he continued to run. And then night came once again, and he reached a mountain range that was set before him. The cold was biting as he continued to run, and nothing except his dungeon rags. And snow fell all around him, drifting the path in front of him. His hands and his feet were numb, yet he continued to run towards home. And in the mountains, he, he passed a group of travelers sitting around a fire in a shallow cave, and they called out to him, man, your hands and your feet are blue with cold. You cannot make it through this mountain pass. Why don't you just give up and die in these mountains? And the man simply exclaimed, because I'm going home. And he continued to run. And as morning dawned and the man came to the end of the mountains, he looked before him and he saw the familiar rolling hills of home filled with green grass and wild flowers. And he recognized this place as his home. And as he came upon his house, he fell to the ground in the middle of the street, ragged and bleeding. The people of the village ran up to him, astonished that he was still alive, and they asked him, how did you make it all the way from that foreign land across a mountain, across a desert, to end up at home? And the man simply replied, because I was going home. See, it's in like manner that Christ sets the hope of eternity before his people. Whatever our affliction, however great our trial, we can rest in the hope that Christ is bringing us home to that land across the river. God gives us grace as we navigate the deserts. He gives us grace to climb through the mountains. 
and he gives us a sure hope of eternity that allows us to say, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the hope that is to be revealed in us, to the glory that is to be revealed in us. So by Christ, we can press on in the face of trials because we are going home. So harvest, fix your eyes on Christ in this week. When that obstacle stands before you, threatening to hold you captive in your desert bondage, look to Christ. Press on and see him as he stands before you in the midst of the Jordan. March boldly in the confidence of the promises that he's made to his people and lay claim to the home which the Lord, your God, has prepared for you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a truth, what a glorious truth. Lord, so often we approach our trials from the side of bondage. Lord, we see that we're still stuck in the desert. And as we, as we have that hope of marching towards Canaan, as we have that joy filling our souls, as we march confidently and forward, trials come. But Lord, you have not left us in that desert. You have promised to bring your people into the land. You have promised to march before us into suffering, into judgment, so that you could make a way for us to walk into freedom on dry ground. Lord, what a truth that is. Lord, what a comfort that is, that even we're in the midst of suffering, that we know that you have suffered with us, that you are fighting at our side, that even in the midst of suffering, we know that eternity is set before us, that our hope is not in this world, that our home is not this land, but that our hope is beyond the river. So guide us, O thou great Jehovah, as we pilgrim through this barren land, for we are weak, but you are mighty. Hold us up with your powerful hand. Lord, let that be our call in this week, that we go forward in your strength, seeking you in Scripture, speaking to you in prayer. Lord, receiving the comfort of your Spirit. Lord, be with us, dwell with us, and give us that confident hope. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to a close in our worship, we'll sing a song of response. He will hold me fast and will rise to sing.
As we go into a new week, and um, for some of us a hard week, uh, we go with the grace of the Lord. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you all till Christ come again. Amen.